Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 28, Julie Talks Teaching, recorded on February 20th, 2015. My name is Julie Bayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Shoebalzer. Hi, Mom. Hi, Julie. So you are buried under like 1,100 inches of snow, which I think is an actual technical measurement of snow. I will tell you that I've learned more about snow and weather in this last couple of weeks than I ever wanted to know. It's it's the frozen tundra, and we're all slightly crazed by it. I it's, saw a hashtag, Alaska-chusets, they're calling Massachusetts now. I'm, I'm on board with that. Yeah, and I, of course, I was listening to the news in New York, and um, they are mispronouncing Massachusetts town names, and they called Worcester Worcester and said, of course, that they had like seven feet of snow, but I still felt proud, despite the fact that they mispronounced it, that, you know. We're going know for the place. record. Uh, well, let's hope you don't get there, because every time I talk to you, you keep talking about how there's more snow. Although I will say, the bad weather does make it possible for you to do lots of crafty projects. If you were a crafter. Well, see, this is what I thought. I got a card from you recently, right? And it looked like it was stamped. And I and I called you up, right? And I said, Mom, did you send me this card? And did you make that? It's fantastic. And what did you say to me? It's something you made many years ago when you were first starting as a crafter. And I've saved all that stuff. And over time, you'll be getting little dribs and drabs of it. I thought it was funny that you didn't even recognize it. Yeah, I actually, I thought it was really interesting that I didn't recognize it. And as soon as we started talking about it, I like couldn't, I couldn't remember when I made it or why I made it or, you know, and it didn't feel like a signature sort of Julie-ish. And then when you told me the other pieces that came with it, because apparently I made you a set of stationery and I had done it uh, with these stamps that I made that were our impression stamps, meaning that if you heat up this foam, you can impress it with anything. So that stamp was of a coin and like there was another stamp you said that was a paper clip. And suddenly I remembered making them, but it wasn't until that moment that I had any memory of doing it. And I think that's kind of fascinating to me. I dove deep into the Julie archive. I guess the next thing you know, I'll be getting some sort of paper mache I made in third grade, right? I may still have it. I think you probably do. That's the good news, right? The memories live on. I was actually watching something on TV and they were advertising that Ancestry.com thing. Mm -hmm. And this woman was so excited in the commercial because she got a leaf and she got to see her grandfather's uh, like census report and his draft card or something. And I was thinking, you know, this is the great benefit that scrapbookers, of course, have over like normal people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is, if you're a memory keeper, you know, it's not so it's not so crazy to me to think that somebody would have that kind of stuff. And this is what I love about Project Life, because unless somebody throws my albums into a dump, which they may, like, you're going to have that, this receipt and this daily life. And I don't know, this is part of what attracts me to memory keeping, none of which is related to our topic of the day. But I guess I'm just in a mood to talk. It must be the cold weather warms up my mouth. Talk away. Um, we, we have no guests today. You know, I think we can still manage to fill an hour. I'm I'm pretty sure we could. More than that. I'm going to have to keep us on a very strict clock here. Because uh, there's, nobody, <laughs> there's nobody to impress or to, you know, in any way curb our natural loquaciousness. Um, so the topic, which actually you suggested to me, is you said that we should talk about teaching. Well, I think one of the things that you do uh, that you're very good at is you teach live classes. And I thought for other people, they might be interested to know some of the ways you go about planning it and why you do certain things and how you feel about certain aspects. And uh, why don't we talk first about how you devise a particular class curriculum? Okay, let's actually talk first because you said something really interesting. I like how I'm changing it on you, even though you're (laughs) supposed to be hosting. Uh, uh, No, because you said something interesting, which is you said live classes, which Uh indicates that there's other kinds of teaching. So in order to know how you start to create a live class, you have to talk about what the other kinds of teaching are and what the difference is. Let's do it. Yeah, what a good idea, Mom. Good idea, good idea. Uh, (laughs) So obviously, besides live teaching, there's online teaching through videos but there's also like there's also teaching done through the written form you know meaning like a blog post with written instructions there's obviously teaching through a book or something like that um and and i think it is a very different experience 
when you're teaching any of those things. And certain projects are better suited to video versus photos. Certain projects are better suited to photos versus video, you know. And I think that's always an interesting thing when you're doing that kind of teaching. Um, and let me explain. An example is always better than a theory. So a project that takes has a ton of drying time and maybe is done over several days or something is much better suited to photos because the video of that would just be tiresome and crazy. A project that has a lot of fussy uh, details and in which it's like folding paper can get confusing in photos, but if you see it in a video, it's much easier to do. That's very well suited to video. And now actually when you talk about live classes, there are some things that are better suited, obviously, to teaching in a live environment. And there are some things that are better suited to teaching online, either in written or video format. And let's talk about the difference between those, if we can. Um, in my, this is all, of course, my opinion. It's not like I'm the great expert on it, but this is the title of this, of course, is Julie Talks Teaching. So it's Julie's philosophy on teaching. So uh, I think for example, that what you can cover in a three-hour class in person, a live class, is minuscule compared to what you can cover in a even two-video online class. It's just the nature of the beast, you know? And so uh, you have to think when you're teaching a live class in terms of manageable amount of material. Also, because I've even noticed this when I teach a six-hour class, which is if people are not used to creating art every single day, it's very tough to keep your stamina up for that period of time. You don't think of six hours as a long period of time, but I can tell you that after the lunch break, there are an enormous number of people that start to crash out. And if you're teaching a weekend of classes or several days of classes, as you go on in time, people have a lot of trouble keeping their art stamina up. So You would think that things should get more intense as class goes on, but actually you need to design it to get slightly less intense. People can have less focus in order to finish their project or push through because they won't have that stamina, which is kind of an interesting thing. As opposed to video, where I can give you a project in a 20-minute video that's going to take you six hours, and it doesn't matter to me because it's a quick video that you watch, and then you go off and do the work that's associated with it, and then you come back when you're ready for the next lesson, when your brain is rested, when everything is dried, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of my incredibly long-winded answer to uh, the the sort of basic differences, I think, between online and in-person, although, honestly, we could probably talk another hour just about that idea. So let's get back to your original question, shall we? Okay, but when you say losing your art stem, and I'm picturing a room full of people with their faces down <laughs> in their paint. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you laugh about it, but actually I have I, there are a number of people who, you know, I go through towards the end of a class maybe in the last two hours, and I'll be like, are you okay? (laughs) Are you, you know, are you having trouble? Because they're literally just sitting there, stock still, staring at what's in front of them, you know? And I start to think, because I start to panic and think, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible teacher. This person's not learning anything. And usually what they say is, I feel very tired. I am loving everything. I just am tired. And I never know whether that's an excuse or not, but I think it's true. And one of the things I have learned from taking classes, which this is a whole other thing to talk about, but I think it's integral if you're going to teach to take classes. One of the things I've learned about taking classes is my style of teaching involves a ton of information. I do, in a six-hour class, there are at least, there's at least one demo every hour and usually two demos per hour. So you can imagine that's a lot of information being given to you in a very short period of time. And so people get overwhelmed. There are other classes I've been to where the teacher demos up front at the beginning of a six-hour class, and that's kind of it, or maybe once at the beginning and once after lunch. Um, and I think it's just, it's it's how your brain works, your preference in the way of, you know, what works for you and what doesn't. I always feel like people show up in class, they're looking for a lot of information, they should get it. And I also think that one of the things that I do well when I teach is I manage to make very complicated looking things, break them down into really simple steps so that people feel that they're achievable and doable. And so that's partly why my methodology of many short demos works because I'm like, add this layer and then come back, add this layer and come back. And 
also because I try to foster in my classes a sense of not caring about the outcome. And if you don't know what the ultimate step is going to be, it's much easier to just enjoy the step that you're at, you know, and that's, I think is really important is let's not focus on what this is going to be. Let's focus on right now for the next 20 minutes, paint with this stroke, you know, stencil this like that, just, you know, have fun with it. And then we'll talk about pulling it together in the last hour or so of class. That brings me to the question of teaching techniques versus teaching a project. This is always a tough one. I never, ever, ever, ever want to take a class that has a project. That's as a student. I hate taking classes that have projects because I hate the idea that I'm going to walk out of class with something that looks like somebody else's work. A technique I can take and make it my own. A project, every time I look at it, I'm going to be like, oh yeah, that's so-and-so's class. And it's a Now, this is obviously personal because the truth of the matter is most people prefer project classes because they like to walk out with something finished. They like to be able to say, hey, hubby, hey, whoever, look what I made today. It's a completed done thing. And I think it's a lot harder to go home with 25 pieces of paper and be like, look, I learned 25 painting techniques. And somebody else looks at them and looks at it and says that, oh, there's 25 pieces of paper. Because one of the things that I find really interesting about the people who take classes, in-person classes in particular, as opposed to online, is they often uh, are in a home or in a situation where friends or family are not necessarily supportive of their art habit. And they're coming to class for some validation, to find some kindred spirits, to find people who understand how exciting it is when a new kind of paint or a new color or a new brush comes into your life. Um, And so... I know that for a lot of people, going home with something that non-art people can't recognize as a good finished product is very tough and makes them question the amount of money the person spent on the class. Now, there's a whole uh, there's a whole series of reasons why I think that's crappy and not okay and that drives me crazy, which I won't get into. But I recognize the fact that students have a need to be able to show somebody this is what I got for my time and my money. Somebody who doesn't understand art and doesn't think that just getting to make art and feel fulfilled and spend time with other people is enough. Somebody who doesn't think that's enough, you can show them a project. So uh, because I have to do project classes, because people want to take project classes, my biggest goal in teaching a project class, class is that nobody will walk out with a project that looks like mine. People will walk out with a project that may be influenced by my style or influenced by my technique, but embraces who they are. So towards that end, my project classes always involve choices. Here are five images you can choose to create. And they always involve hand painting because the way I hold a brush, the way you hold a brush, the way, you know, somebody else holds a brush, that's three different ways of holding a brush. And even if we do the exact same straight line, our three straight lines, I know it sounds crazy, but when you do it, people are, are shocked. Our three straight lines with the same brush and the same paint at the same time are going to look like three different lines because we all hold it differently. We all push the brush differently. And so I like to bring in that human aspect of it so that, okay, we're making a book, but everybody's book is going to be different. Okay, we're making, you know, whatever it is, a, a panel painting, but everybody's panel painting is going to be their own because I want you to have art hanging in your home that reflects who you are. If you want art in your home that reflects who I am, then buy a piece of my art, you know, but your art should reflect who you are and the marks that you make and the choices that you make. And I also, I often talk about teaching as empowering. I want people to be able to come to class and I don't want to say that they can remake the project because that's the wrong way of putting it, but I want them to be able to take the ideas and techniques, assimilate them into their own work, you know, and then let them become something else. I I um I once heard a story, which I don't know if it's true, but this is what I heard, and so I'm saying that right out. I don't know if it's true, which is that she doesn't allow, if you take a class with her, you're not allowed if you make art Uh, in that class or after that class that using her ideas and techniques, you're not allowed to sell it even though you made it um, because she feels that it's stealing from her. 
And I think really good advice that somebody gave me once is you should never teach anything that you're not finished with. So when I give somebody an idea or a technique in class, I'm prepared for them to take that idea or technique and put it into their own work and to use it. And I think if you're in the middle of something that you're really in love with and you don't want anybody else to do it, then you shouldn't be teaching it. You need to wait until you're done with that idea before you begin to teach it. And I think um, that's where things get tough, which is if you are doing the same thing for years and years and years, it's really hard to be done with it because you're still doing it. And it's also because sometimes it's hard to teach something you're not currently interested in. That can be very sort of enervating and disappointing. Um, so I think it becomes a really hard line. But I try to I try really hard to do that, which is not to teach anything that I'm not 100% fully willing to let go into the world and see pop up on other people's blogs and other people's whatever. Now, that said, there's a whole other side of like actually stealing classes and stealing other stuff, which is a, one of the negative parts of teaching. But I think that's, say la vie, that's life with everything, right? Right. Can you talk about teaching classes of different sizes and different skill levels? Yes. So um, I am a walk around teacher. What that means is I'll do a demo, people go back to their seats, and then I walk around and give people individual help where they need it. In order to make it around to everyone, 25 is the outside that I can handle by myself. I know, Mom, that you've come with me as my assistant occasionally when I've had some larger classes of like 35, 40. But it was really tough because people come to class partially because they want your input and they want you, you know. Um... So teaching a larger class like that is tough also because, like, I try to learn people's names and I can't keep track of 40 names. There's just no way. 25 is really pushing at my brain anyway. Um, you know, when you try to make everybody feel a personal touch, you know. Um, now, there are classes that are designed to be larger. Like, I taught a class at CHA uh, this last January that was 50 people using machines and there were people to help with any technical problems and I stayed at the front of the room with a uh, projector you know screen so that you could see what I was doing and that's a very for me that's a hard teaching gig because I feel very distant from the students I like a certain amount of interaction I like to think that if I were a rock star I'd be the kind who crowd surfs because hmm. uh, I like to be with the people. Um, so it's very hard for me to be like up at the front. Um, they talk about uh, management styles, right? I used to teach with my father these management classes. And so I, I have a uh, sideways knowledge of some sort of business school kind of management crap. But so uh, they talk about spoken wheel, meaning there's someone at the center and then there's all these spokes going out, but then all, but the spokes are actually all attached. And that's the idea of communication is coming from everywhere. Even though there is a very centralized leader, it's still people working all around. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of way of teaching I like as opposed to a sort of very pyramid scheme in which I'm here and everybody's down there and I'm sort of telling them what to do. Um, I taught a class. Uh, the largest class I ever taught, I think, was 100 people, again, standing at the front of the room and trying to teach. And I think the reason I dislike teaching those classes so much is those for me are results-oriented classes as opposed to process-oriented classes. Because people show up, they don't expect to have a personal interaction with you. What they expect is to get a project. What they expect is to walk out with something pretty. And they either are able to do the steps in the exact order because you can't really change and make accommodations for people. If someone's having a problem or trouble in a 20-person class, I can take 20 minutes to explain it to that person off to the side. In a large class of 100, if someone's having a problem, you have to sort of say like, sorry, go drown. <laughs> I, I hope I, I'll, I hope you'll be fine at some point. Learn to swim. You know what I mean? Uh, which feels terrible. Um, but you, you have to worry, this is like, like I'm a, you know, bounty hunter in 2094. You have to worry about the, you know, majority of the people, not the minority. So you have to really go for keeping those people on track. And like, that was something that really hit home for me when I taught the scan and cut class to the 50 people, which is there are so many people who had some technical problems with machines and there were three or four people who were enormously slow and, 
I had to keep stopping because that was a class where if people got lost, they would be lost forever. And you could see how it held up the whole class and it killed the timing. And we really did not get to the third um, card in the class, which drove me crazy. Um, you know, but that's sort of, say la vie, what are you going to do? So my preference is to teach a smaller class um, as opposed to a larger class. Again, the benefit of online teaching is you can have a thousand people in a class and if they ask a question, you can deal with them because it's a quick, it's a post on a message board. You know what I mean? It's an email. It's a whatever. So that's, that's kind of nice. Anyway. Yes. So I'll bet some funny or disastrous things have happened to you in the course of teaching and perhaps you'd like to share. Gosh, funny or disastrous. There are of course many disastrous <laughs> things. Um, I once got, my flight got canceled. Okay. So I've had several flight nightmare problems, of course, when you're flying in to teach, right? Because normally you fly in the day before and if you're being cheap and you don't want to pay for a hotel that night, because of course, if you're trying to make money, an extra $200, do you know what I mean? For a hotel, for food, for whatever, you don't want to do that, right? So then maybe even you're flying in day of, but of course, you know, flight delays. And as we've discussed the weather, <laughs> the northeast in the winter is a nightmare, right? So, uh, there was the class that I was supposed to fly on the day before. My flight got canceled. I uh, desperately rebooked a flight, which got me in exactly 10 minutes after class started. So I called a friend who was local, who went, who started the class, and then I showed up. That was terrible. Um, there was the time that my flight was canceled due to weather and I was told I couldn't be rebooked again for another five days. So I had to eat that ticket and buy a brand new, incredibly expensive, like $1,800, you know, ticket to California. Uh, because what else was I going to do? I had to go to class, you know, I couldn't be like, well, I'll be there four days after class starts. Um, see you later. You know, I mean, I think there, there's, that's all like the travel nightmare stuff. It hasn't happened to me, but I have heard stories of people who their supplies don't arrive. I've started to ship supplies ahead because you can't trust the airlines in terms of luggage. Because I've also had the lovely thing of no matter how many nice notes with smiley faces and hearts that I write and put in my class bag and say, hi, I'm an artist. These are my art supplies. Um, if you open any containers, please close them tightly as paint does tend to spill. Thanks so much. Heart, heart, smiley face, right? No matter how many times I write that note, no matter how many layers of tape I put around the top of the tape jars, I swear to you. TSA opens them constantly and then has an inability to close them. And so this is the reason I never travel with paint in my regular suitcase anymore because after having clothes ruined by paint, I now at least accept that the inside of my class travel bag is covered in paint and you just sort of accept that with a zen-like acceptance. Um, I don't know. I thought about putting like a cookie attached to the note or something, but I don't know. It's not It's not working for me. Anyway, Um uh, I have heard of people, uh, you know, completely having supplies lost, and that would be a nightmare. But I suppose the good news about teaching is if you don't have something other than the samples, which obviously the students would like to see, you can borrow their supplies if you had to to do the class, um, especially because I don't kick classes. I don't provide any supplies generally. Occasionally, I'll have like deli paper or something like that for people to use so they don't have to buy their own box and stuff like that. But for the most part, because I'm not giving them anything, then the good news is I can use what they have. Um, I've had many colorful characters come to class, including some who were not registered students because, you know, sometimes you're teaching somewhere and it's, it's your people just come in and you're sort of, I've never clear on what the polite way is to say, get the F out. You know what I mean? You crazy weirdo. So in New York, I have had some homeless people wander in looking for bathrooms. Uh, I have in California, I've had people wander in who, you know, want to check things out. I've had, uh, I've had people come in who were not registered and didn't want to pay, but just wanted to sit there because they were with a friend, which I think is weird and problematic. You know, it's it's the eternal uh, funness of all that good stuff. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I think I have actually overall had very good experiences with um, 
with teaching, there are, of course, always the paint fell over, the paint water fell over, the, you know, project dropped on the floor kind of moments. But those are really, who hasn't had those? You laugh them off and keep moving. Most impressively, I've had several people come to class in white without an apron and live to tell the tale. And I always wow. think, I always think I sort of want to take a brush and just attack those people as sort of a, you thought you could get out of here alive, but you can't. The paint will get you every time. One of the things that people say about your classes, and I have seen this in person, is that they're very fun. And what do you think are the things that make a class fun? Um, I think the things for, I'm again, I can only teach the way that I would like to be taught. So I would always like to be taught where people are, uh, you know how, okay, let's talk about Super Nanny, shall we? What? Okay, so Super Nanny is a TV show, or it was a TV show, I don't even know it's on anymore, but basically it was a show where she, where you're out of control kid, she shows you how to bring your kid into control. And I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, the way you did that was by providing some sort of rules and guidance. And suddenly your kid was like, oh, there's rules and guidance, I can do this, right? And so I am certainly not equating students to children, but I am saying that, like, I know the classes I like to take are the ones in which there is freedom but handrails, which is what I try to create. Because I think if you're really scared and there's too much freedom, it can't be fun because you're just freaking out and you're scared. But if there are handrails and there's some kind of guidance and yet there's freedom within that, then I think that's where creativity comes. That's where fun comes. That's where re relaxation comes from because you can't have fun if you're tense. So I try really hard to create a zone of no judgment, a place where there are no mistakes. It's just creative opportunities, a space where, um, you know, you can celebrate sort of joyfully your geekiness and also to empower people to believe that they can do the things that they can't. The greatest thing that has come out of teaching my sketchbook class is, you know, I told myself this lie for a thousand years, which is that I can't draw. And in fact, sometimes I still say it. I can't draw. I can't draw. Okay. And the thing, what that means to me is it's because I can't look at something and then take a ballpoint pen and perfectly in 10 minutes you know, represent that. And there are people who can. And those are people who I'm like, now that guy can draw. I can't do that. But what I have learned is I can draw a picture and you can identify what it is and you can find where it is and, you know, and you can see like what it is. So it is a drawing, right? And so I decided to pass that on to other people. And so the first time I taught my sketchbook class, uh, I almost always start class by, again, this is part of also what I think makes a class fun is I, I have I have people introduce themselves. So it's, again, not just me being in charge. We are here as a group for the day. And then I always ask them, you know, what are you hoping to get out of class? And um, almost everybody said, and I'm expecting in the next six hours that you'll teach me how to draw. <laughs> you know, and I'm expecting in the next six hours that I will be a proficient drawer by the end of this class, which, you know, more intimidating words were never spoken in the history of the world. But the amazing thing is that every single person walked out of that class with drawings that they did. And the same thing is true when I taught it again. At first I thought, gosh, maybe this is a fluke and this method doesn't actually work as well as I think it does. This is just New Yorkers who are awesome, right? But no, I taught it again and again. Everybody walked out and they were like, wow, I guess I can draw. Because it it's drawing is just like painting. It's just like anything. You have to just break it down into manageable, doable, tiny little steps. And once you do that... Yes, anybody can draw. Can you draw photorealistically? Well, with practice, yeah, you could, but not today. And I think like that, that sort of uh, get making people feel empowered, that's fun. Making pe people feel like they can do something, that's fun. And so I think to make a class fun, I think it has to be enjoyable obviously meaning like it's pleasant atmosphere to be there there's no one who's like you know being a jerk or being unhappy or whatever and then I also think like you have to get something out of it because a lot of times people say that was fun but they, it's also because they got something out of it and I always hope that people leave class I always say with at least one or two ideas that change the way that you make art
Not that that's overly ambitious or anything. I want to change your life in six hours. But no. But like with one or two ideas that you just – that you're going to be like, this will come into my art now for the next year. I'm going to do this. That does sound fun. Why don't you talk about the classes you take and why you pick certain classes? Okay. So as I said, I never look at projects because projects are deceiving because a lot of times when you look at a class picture, what you like is that person's style. So you have to look at the description to see if they're teaching you how to do that style or if they're teaching you the technique that they use to make it, in which case you won't learn their style. You'll just learn their technique. I know that sounds a little hard to understand, but I would put it this way, which is like if... um. If Picasso were teaching a class and he put up a picture. By the way, his... I would take that class, <laughs> even though I'm not at all artsy. I would take a class if Picasso were teaching a class. I would take every class. Uh, yeah, so let's say Picasso's teaching a class. And he puts up, you know, one of his famous pictures. What is it? Mademoiselle's de Avignon or whatever, right? Okay. So, um, and you look at it. And you love it, okay? And you're like, I'm going to take that class because you think that means you're going to leave with a picture that looks like that. But then you read the class description, and what he's teaching is skin tones. Well, how are you going to leave with anything that looks like that if he's just teaching you how to do his version of skin tones? Do you know what I mean? You may learn something about that, and it may help you in some way, but you're not actually going to learn how to do that thing that you like, right? So I read class descriptions extraordinarily carefully because I want to know what are the ideas, techniques, tenets, whatever, that I'm actually going to walk out of this class with, you know? And one of the things uh, that attracts me is usually something that I have read about but been nervous to do or something that is very uh, design or critique fo- focused because I feel like that's something that's hard to do by yourself. You really need a class and a teacher to figure it out. Um, so that's sort of how I pick classes. I'm not saying that's the right way to do it, but I think as a student, you have an obligation to come into class knowing what it is you're looking for. It might be that you're just looking to be social for a couple hours and that's a hundred percent fine that's awesome come and hang out and chit chat in class I love I love classes for that reason um, it may be that you don't have any time to do art at home and the only chance you have is to do it out of your house so you just want to make art you don't care what it is that's awesome it might be that you want to spend time with a celebrity like Picasso and you just want to be in the same room as him I think we would probably need like what is it they say in Goodwill Hunting like a space heater uh to make that happen. Uh, anyway, so uh, I, I think, you know, you you have to know what you want out of class. And I think when I go to class, I'm looking for the same thing that I just said I want people to leave with. I'm looking for those one or two ideas that are going to change the way I'm making art. And I think I go to class looking for those nuggets. And it's like anything else. If you're looking at the ground for $20 bills, you're more likely to find one than if you're looking up at the sky, right? I'm not guaranteeing you're going to find a $20 bill, but you're more likely to. And so the same thing is true in class. If you're looking for a couple nuggets, you're more likely to find them than if you're not actually looking for them. If you're looking for a good social time, you're more likely to find it because you're actively trying to make it happen. So I think you want to go into class knowing what you want out of class. I think people who uh, follow you may or may not know that you have a background in theater. Because um, I'm so dramatic. Well, I, I thought you could talk a little bit about how some of the things that were successful for you in the theater are also part of being a successful teacher. Um, I think that... So I was a director, just so people know. I was not an actor. I was a director. Um, You have been an actor. I have been an actor. It's true. Um, Including on an ill-fated after-school special in which I rapped. But that is a TV show we shall never talk about again. Anyway. um, So I, I was a director. And one of the things that a director does 
I've always said a really good director is able to trick the actors into thinking that every single idea is their own, is the actor's own idea. If you can convince people that all the choices they're making on stage are things they thought of and that you did nothing, you're a really good director. Um, and so because you want people to be invested in it as if it's their own and you want to work people around to your you want to work people around to your point of view without them realizing you're working them around to your point of view. Um, and so much of directing, I mean, obviously there are the visual aspects, but it's people management, it's manipulation, it's, you know what I mean? It makes, I make it sound so devious, but I'm really just pointing it down to truly it's basis, basis forms. So I'm talking about theatrical directing, which is completely different from filmic directing, which is more of a photography issue. Um, but working with actors is, is really about getting them to, uh, trust you to create a sense of harmony in the room. I know that when I would start rehearsals, um, I would call you and early on it was like day three or four of rehearsal and I would say, I think I've got them. I've got them now. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it got, it kept going back. Then it would be like day three, then day two, then day one. And then there are even times I remember after casting, I would call you and I would say, I've got them. And what I meant by that is I had gotten a room of people to trust me so that when I asked them to do something, they would do it. And as I got older and as I got better at it, I was able to make it happen faster and faster, which was good. And I think in terms of teaching, you know, you are trying to get a room full of strangers, A, to meld as a cohesive group, because what is the point of taking a class if the class doesn't have a nice, chummy, wonderful atmosphere, right? Right. So you're trying to get them to meld as a group, but you're also trying to get them to trust you because you're asking them to do weird things that are uncomfortable um, and that they may not be happy with. So they have to trust you. Now, these days, I have the added benefit of people, a lot of people come to class. Usually more than half the class knows who I am when they show up. Um, and so I have the benefit of sort of, they already are predisposed to want to trust me, right? Okay. So that's lucky. Um, but you know, you still have to get the rest of the people to do it. And, you know, I, over the years, I've developed a number of different techniques for breaking the ice, for breaking the tension, for making people feel welcome, for getting people excited. Most of them involve humiliating myself or making people laugh at me because as soon as you laugh, it breaks the tension. As soon as you, as there's humor and people see that it's silliness and it's not serious and that this is different from everyday life and we're not going to you know, be art artist with a capital A and a beret. If you want to wear a beret, you can. Um, but, you know, we're going to have fun and we're going to make stuff and that's going to be awesome. And if you want to paint Hello Kitty and I want to paint something that looks like a Renoir and you want to, you know, do a square, rock on, you know what I mean? Let's make it happen together. So I, I think that kind of like group dynamic stuff definitely comes over from the theater. Um... And I also think, you know, uh, there's a rule in the theater, I think, or I don't know if it's a rule, but it's a rule. it was always a rule for me when I was directing, which is I would never tell an actor that there was a problem unless I had a solution. So generally, um, what happens is actors will run something or they'll do part of a scene or they'll do a whole show and then you as a director will give them notes. And then those could be like, please remember to cross upstage or, you know, you need to cheat out here or I didn't believe it when you said whatever you're just giving them notes on their performance. Now, if you say to an actor, this scene didn't go well, and that's the note, I'm not sure how they can fix that, you know? I'm not sure how they can do anything about that. If you say, nothing is working about the love scene, it may be true, but they can't do anything about it. So all you're doing then is making somebody feel bad. So what's the point of that? So... I developed really quickly the ability to boil down to what the problem is. And even if it was I wasn't right about what the problem is, I would just take a stab at it. Because being able to say, the love scene isn't working because I feel like you guys are actually too physically close and a little more distance would create some tension. So why don't we try playing it um, with the furniture between you guys at all times, no matter where you go in the room. And then finally, we have that moment at the end where you come together. Now, that may not be the right solution, but you could take that direction and you could try it. So the same thing is true 
in art. If something's not working for somebody about a painting or about a thing in their art journal or about whatever, the first question I say to them in class is, what don't you like about it? Because just not liking it is depressing and deflating. Being able to change it is empowering and wonderful. So if you can say, I don't like this because the colors are muddy, then I can say, fantastic. Here are three solutions to getting your colors to be less muddy. Now, that may actually not be why you didn't like it, but you took a stab at it. You're trying to analyze it, and that's a doable choice. And I think that's something I always do in class, and that's something I really try to teach my students to do too, which is to look at something and to be able to say, why you don't like it, why it's not working for you. Because if you can't verbalize it, you can't fix it. And actually, it's funny because you and I were talking last night, mom, because, okay, so I got really frustrated yesterday because I gained a pound and I was yelling at my, into the phone at my mother and I was like, oh my God, I don't understand what's happening. I'm, I'm such sure a good it's my fault. <laughs> I was like, I've been such a good weight watcher this week and I've been weighing and measuring everything. How could I have gained a pound? I hate the world. And I was like, maybe it's because I had too many carbs. I mean, I ate within my points, but I was more carb heavy than usual. Or maybe it's because I ate my big meal at night instead of during the day. I better make some adjustments. I've, and my mom was, and mom, you said to me, you were like, okay, calm down. <laughs> you were like, uh, I'm sure it'll work itself out. And just remember, you know, you want a, 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 you want there to be a problem that you can fix. Sometimes it's not a problem that you can fix. But this is, this is literally what we're talking about today, right? Which is I look at anything that happens and I want to be able to identify what I can do to change that. What I can do to make it be different. And I think that from my theater career to my personal life to, you know, uh, to my art classes, to making art, to whatever it is, I'm always interested in what can I do to fix that? Because being upset about it, being depressed about it, being angry about it is completely unuseful. But doing something about it, you know, that's a great, that's choice. And then you're moving forward like a shark, never stop swimming. Although sometimes time is a player. You have to let yes. time be part of the equation. Yes, yes, yes. Which actually brings us to several things, which is A, the way that I really create art now is in pieces over time. That has really changed for me. But it makes teaching classes extraordinarily hard because it's difficult to tell people, we're going to work on 16 pieces in parts. None of it will come together at any point. You'll have to make it come together later. Have fun with that. Uh, that's tough, but that's why I find myself more and more gravitating towards, I like teaching two day classes. I want to teach some like three or four day classes. I like taking classes that are four or five day immersion classes over time because time is a factor because where you start on day one and where you end on day five are totally different. And I'm really excited. I'm taking a five day class in May and if nothing else, I know that I will be immersed in someone else's techniques and art over five days and that I'll be able to grow in a totally different way than taking, you know what I mean, a quickie class. Because again, what am I looking for from class? I'm looking for an idea or two that's going to change the way I work. Bravo to you if you can teach it to me in three hours. Bravo to you if you can teach it to me in six hours. Bravo to you if you can teach it to me in, you know, 72 or 172 hours. But I just need that thing. And, and at this point... I find that a three-hour or a six-hour class tends to be a very shallow look at an art technique or idea. Necessarily, it has to. But if you can spend several days and you have that depth, chances are that there'll be a more advanced idea. There'll be a deeper thing to root out. So, yes, time is a huge factor in all things. And I'm pleased to say, Mom, that that pound is gone now today. So clearly it was just a weird thing. But I was very upset yesterday. And I take credit for that. Yes, you can. The pound being gone. Yes, you can. <laughs> that seems fair. So I think that what I hear you saying is that it's not enough to be a teacher who who knows stuff. You have to be a person who likes people. Yeah, sometimes I actually think that teaching is not actually about being either a good artist or or anything like that. I mean, I think there are, I, I, by the way, like, I think Picasso's amazing. I bet he was a crap teacher. 
You know, honestly, I have no idea if he was or not because there's no reports about Picasso the teacher. But hearing the tales of his incredible egomaniacal, you know, life, you're guessing that he's not going to be a great teacher. But I could be wrong. And I'm sorry, Picasso, if I hurt your poor dead feelings. Um, But I think the thing is, like, you have to not only like people, but you have to be a person who... In some level, I think to be a good teacher, you have to be selfless and excited about other people's breakthroughs. Because I think being a, how do I put this? It's like being a teacher is, it's just like I talked about the thing about letting go. Like you can't teach anything that you're still holding on to. You have to let go of things. And I think the same thing is true, which is if somebody comes to class and makes gorgeous, beautiful things, you can't be jealous. You can't be whatever. You have to be excited for them and want to push them further and make them fly. And I think, you know, that old thing about those who can do and those who can't teach is bull. But I think where it where it comes from to a certain extent is there are many people who have devoted their selflessly devoted their lives to helping other people realize their dreams, you know. Um, because they really understand how to kickstart people, how to get through to people, how to whatever. And I think like teaching is so much about those things. And it reminds me of like, nobody expects someone who's a theatrical director to be able to act, but people expect you if you're a teacher, which in some ways is the same thing. And our teacher that you also can make great art. And I actually, I think it's two different skill sets. Making art is one skill set. Teaching it is another. And you know, okay. So I once asked my producer, Kathy, on Scrapbook Soup, I said, what, um, why on earth did you pluck me from the chorus, so to speak? You know, I did one segment for her many years ago, and she was like, who are you? I want to work with you. And In case I said, people don't know, Scrapbook Soup Oh, I'm is... sorry. Scrapbook Soup TV on PBS. It's a, show, it's a TV show that I host on PBS. Um, go to scrapbooksouptv.com and then c- click on listings to see if it's shown in your area. Anyway, so, uh, I, so I asked her once. I said, what did you – what was it? She said, it's two things. She said, you come through the camera, and that's, that's just, you know, your, your personality comes right through the camera. And, and I, of course, personally, Julie can take no credit for that. That's just luck of the draw, right? Um, she said the second thing, though, is she said you are a really good teacher. You break things down in really understandable ways. And on TV, when you've got six minutes to teach somebody a project, you've got to be able to break it down into something that makes sense to people and feels easy and achievable. And yet it's complicated enough that they need to watch instead of just being able to like look at a photo and figure it out. So it's a, it's an interesting line. So, uh, I think, what was the question? I've wandered into something. The question was (laughs) about having to like people. Oh, having to like people. That's right. That's right. Okay. So that the, so what I'm saying is again it comes back to was I a fabulous scrapbooker is why she hired me no was I you know an amazing artist because she hired me no it was that I came through the camera and I was able to break down a complicated idea into something simple you know and I think that's the thing which is uh, teaching is a skill of empowering it's a skill of making people feel like they can I think you can learn a lot from people who are not necessarily commercially successful and sometimes you can learn more from them than from people who are who are unable to articulate who are unable to say this is why this works this is why it doesn't this is how I break it down this is you know what I mean I'm looking it's those handrails I need I need handrails I'm afraid to walk down the stairs without them Good for you. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to do? You want to talk about about teaching before we wrap this up? Um, I would say this. I would say if you have never taken an in-person class, I encourage you to do it. I think it's a wonderful experience. I find it very addictive. I try to take classes as often as I can. Um, and if you get a bad class, meaning a class that you don't enjoy, try to think about why you don't like it. And then look for classes that don't have those elements that you didn't like. You know, keep trying until you find it because there truly is something magical about going to a room with a group of people who all love what you love, who 
were all geeked out and excited about the same thing and who were all there, you know, for the love of the game, so to speak. And who who doesn't want to spend their day like that? So I, I know that whenever I teach, I am reminded of what a joyful experience it is and that sometimes when I'm depressed about my own work or feeling really frustrated about the way my business is going or whatever, I teach and I rediscover the joy because there are so many people there who are delighted by simple things and it reminds me how delighted I was when I first came across them. I think, and now I don't have children, but I imagine it must be akin to when you have a child and the child gets excited about snow and suddenly you're excited about snow and the kid is excited about Christmas and then you're excited about Christmas or the kid's excited about whatever it is. It's like you see it through fresh eyes, through new eyes and everything becomes reinvigorated. And so I I think I will probably always keep teaching, whether I'll travel teach for much longer as a separate issue, but that's the whole plane flying nightmare money sucked down the drain by hotels and airfare. But um but I will always continue to teach because as much as I I think it is one of those things, as much as you give, that's how much you get back. It's a it's a I'm rubber, you're glue. You know what I mean? It bounces bounces around and then it sticks. Okay. okay. Would you like to tell us where we can find you? What a good job you did hosting, mom. <laughs> good job. Okay, so as mom said, it looks like it's time for us to wrap up. She's completely hidden on the internet unless you know where to look. Occasionally she leaves a comment on Instagram and you can kind of guess it's her, but it's tough. Um, and anyway, as always, you can find me at balzerdesigns.typepad.com and do leave us your comments or questions at balzerdesigns.com backslash arting, A-R-T-I-N-G. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag, which is a new hashtag. It's not that new, but it's new enough that I feel like I keep saying it's new, which is hashtag arting podcast. So thanks so much for listening, and we will see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. Podcast.